Welcome to the FNO InsureTech Podcast, a place where movers and shakers from all points within the insurance ecosystem gather and discuss all things InsureTech. We talk about how technology and innovation are affecting and driving change in the industry. Here are your hosts, Matt D. Fothery, Lee Boyd, and Rob Beller. Hey, everybody out there in podcast world where we assume uh, for this particular episode, you're hunkered down in your home more than likely. Welcome to another exciting, enthralling, remarkable, and intense episode of FNO InsureTech. Hi, everybody. I I am your co-host, Rob Beller, and... Out there in Texas, we have your other co-host, Mr. Lee Boyd. Yeah, I I am here in Texas, hunkered down, uh, you're, working uh, working away from everybody. You're, uh, in a, you're in a great big empty, aren't you? I'm a great big empty. So we have most of our workforce is, is remote, and they're all uh, hunkered down, and they're all working hard. Uh, but you know that's what the that's what the world is doing right now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's what we're doing out here in California. Uh, we are um, hunkered down. That's exactly right. I'm just trying yeah. to talk my wife into uh, staying out of the real world, which is um, complicated because she's uh, all over the place. Yeah, you know, Rob, I woke up this morning to some news that really kind of shook me. Uh, we we talk a lot about insured tech, and we talk a lot about the conference out there in Las Vegas. And I woke up this morning seeing that MGM is, is, uh, shutting down and they're not going to be taking reservations until, uh, at least May 1st. So the reservation, you can't place it, you know, it can't stay until at least May 1st. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's huge. That is, that is huge for that company, uh, to shut down the, the hotel and, and casino games out there. Yeah. Here in California, as I'm sure across most of the country, uh, all the restaurants are closed. Mm-hmm. Um, they do uh, takeout only uh, and some food delivery only, but um, life as we're used to it has pretty much ground to a halt. Yeah. Uh, you know, me and you have talked a lot about how this will be a time um, in our in our history where, you know, they write books about it. Yes. They write, they'll write books about this time, about how the world uh, came together to try to stop this pandemic that's going on. And everyone, everyone came together to do that. It'll be a very interesting time to look back on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, our hope for everybody, for our families who work with us, as well as for all you that uh, listen and join us every week, is that uh, you stay safe and healthy. And um, we'll, we'll be there every week with a little bit of uh, information yeah, and um, and conversation about insurtech. So at least, if nothing else, you can stay a little distracted because how much Netflix can you watch in a week? Well, that's too I guess much. We're about I guess. To find, I guess we're about to find out, aren't we? We're going to find out when you know, when everybody's streaming Netflix. So, but uh-huh. I assume everybody who's working at home is working typical eight to five, and they're off their off their social media and off their streaming devices, and they're really you know, working hard. That is what I assume happens. Well, we know everybody at 470 is. Obviously. We're we're all, we're all working hard and, uh, and, and taking care of our customers regardless of the exterior external circumstance. Right. And we'll keep doing that throughout the duration of this. And, uh, speaking of podcasts, yeah, podcasters, we have a podcaster on our show today. Yes, we do. Why don't you tell them who it is, Ron? It's Mr. Ron Glosman who is the CEO and founder of Chisel AI. What, what's that? Well, I think, I think Ron is going to do a wonderful job of explaining it to us and telling us what it is. But uh, in a nutshell, uh, he has the capability to take uh, data and documents and read those documents and, and work with them to make logical decisions. And he started this as a, as a young man uh, back in college on a way to quickly uh, digest very long books. So I think it's a great story. I'm very excited to hear it today. And um, yeah, I'm excited to, to get to visit with him. Yeah, I, uh, a, a bright guy, an affable guy, and um, 
uh, and very young. And so very young. Uh, we'll hear uh, the story about how he went from the dorm room to the boardroom. Huh? <laughs> I like, you like that. how I did that. I liked how you uh, did that. That I was just, really good. That kind of stuff just comes to me. I can't help yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and so rather than us hearing us continue to go chit -chat. on about chit chat, chit chat, we'll, um, we'll just move forward and hear our interview with Ron Glosman, CEO and founder of Chisel AI. Hey everybody. We're here today with a guest, uh, in the midst of the coronavirus craziness. Uh, so yeah. it's incredibly kind of him to make the time and mental space for us to pick his brains. In the midst of all this, we have Ron Glosman, who is the founder and CEO of Chisel AI. And how are you doing, Ron? Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. I am doing quite well, given everything that's going on. Uh, as you mentioned, I think, uh, you know, thankful for my health, thankful for my family's health, and hoping that everybody out there is staying healthy as well. Yeah, we... We all feel the same way and hope we hope we can have the same conversation a couple months from now, right? For sure. Yeah, what, what a weird time we're in right now. I mean, we're actually going to be recording this one, uh, and it's going to go out in a couple of days. Normally, we don't talk about real-world events or what's going on at this very moment, but, uh, you know, a lot of people are at home. You know, what about you? You're, you, know, you live in Canada. Tell us where in Canada you live. Yeah, so uh, our company is based in downtown Toronto, uh, smack in the middle of Ontario, um, and things here are, are okay. I don't think there's uh, mandatory closures of work yet, but most restaurants are closed. They're only serving takeout, which I think is also the case in other parts of uh, the United States and other parts of the world, and we're allowing and having everybody work from home if they wish so, and anybody who wants to come in the, to the office is welcome to as well. Um, so we're staying calm, we're staying level-headed, and we're looking to what the health authorities are recommending for best practices. Yeah, that's, we're, yeah, that's wonderful. What, what about the uh, toilet paper situation? <laughs> yeah. Um, let's, get to, let's get down to what's important, Ron. Yeah, uh, it's, it was a little difficult to find some, but uh, I think we have enough to last us through the craziness. Because the reason we're asking is because we might take a road trip to Toronto to buy toilet paper if we need to. We're just checking out where our resources are. We need people to know where they can get that. This is a, this is a news channel, right? <laughs> so, Ron, you're not only a founder, you're a podcaster. Is that correct? You're, you're, yeah. among, you're among our fraternity? Yeah, I don't think we have quite as much experience as, as you do. We started our podcast maybe three or four months ago, so we're still new into it. And we talk a little bit about AI in insurance, and it's called AI Wisdom uh, Innovation in Insurance. And our main focus is just talking about uh, how different technologies, although it's titled AI, it's not always AI. Our most recent episode was actually about blockchain, which is a very cool technology and uh, I have the chance to actually have other people come on. And I do a lot of listening and not as much speaking on that podcast. So I think this will be a little bit different. Right, right. You are correct. Because uh, on this one, you're the star. Even though Lee thinks he's the star. Well. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, let's just be honestly. Of course. Yes, we will be uh, honest, Rob. Honestly. Um, anyways, let's, let's, let's start talking about... Um, about you and your unique story and Chisel AI, why don't you start off with telling us what Chisel AI is and, and what you guys do? Give us, give us a few minutes on that. Yeah, so I'll start with where we are today and I'll, I'll work into the founding story because I think it's an interesting tidbit of, of how we got to be here. So today we sure. are a uh, solution vendor specifically for the insurance industry primarily today focused on the commercial space. We work with both brokerages and underwriters to help them automate a lot of routine, mundane tasks that are time-consuming and not adding value to their business. And today there's two main focuses for our business. One of them has to do with uh, removing errors and omissions. So brokers today spend a lot of time doing policy check, comparing the policy against the binder to make sure that the paperwork matches basically what was bound, you know, 60 to 90 days prior to the policy being issued. 
On the flip side, with the carriers, we're helping them underwrite more business by being uh, smarter about the business that they're looking to underwrite. Statistically speaking, even though as much as people from the outside like to think that insurance is a very standardized product, different companies have different risk appetites and they end up underwriting different segments of the market and within the geographic regions, different sizes of business. And so we're helping companies find the business that they like to write and write more of it. And we do that by helping them be smarter about the business that they're declining and better route and triage the business that is actually going to be valuable to them, whether that's through profitability or just an interest area that they want to grow into. And so if I look back on the journey, we started this about five and a half years ago, actually in the student space. So at the time, I was a student at the University of Waterloo in Canada, studying computer science and business, and it was exam season. And I was sitting there and I said to myself, it doesn't really make sense that a textbook is a thousand pages and an exam is 10 pages. If you do that math, that's like 1% of the content. And when I study, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm creating a summary of the textbook and just studying that summary. So what if I can teach a computer how to read and create summaries of textbooks? My goal was one page per chapter. That way I could just take that summary, study it before the exam, and ideally get a good mark. And then being a computer science student, I thought that was a lot more interesting than actually doing the studying. And so I spent the next four months working on the prototype. And at the time it was called Note, which I thought was a good name because it helps people with their notes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so it ended up, uh, I ended up building it and I got it to the point where you know, I was able to stop going to class, to put it lightly, and spend more time doing the things that I enjoyed, which meant playing video games and actually working on this technology. It allowed me to spend a lot of time learning. And so my friends heard about it. They said, Ron, can you share it with us? I didn't think much of it. So I said, no problem. I'll put it on the Google Chrome web store at the time. I put it out there. And in two weeks, it went viral. It was in 33 countries, 44 of the top Ivy League schools in the world. We're talking Princeton, Stanford, Harvard, Yale. It was in Russia, China, India, Brazil, Portugal, Netherlands, Switzerland, Australia, France, Netherlands. You name it. It was on every continent except, obviously, Antarctica. Because penguins are cute, but they can't read. Otherwise, (laughs) I think they would still do it. And so, you know, I worked on that as a hobby for two years because... Students don't have discretionary income. And so it, it didn't make sense from a business perspective, but it was definitely a cool technology. And so I kept working on it as a hobby for about two years. And in that time, it went on to be named one of the best 50 apps for students of all time. So clearly we had some success. In 2016, towards the end of the year, I was invited by RBC, which is uh, the Royal Bank of Canada, to their first ever machine learning conference. And they asked me to come and sit on a panel and answer questions on artificial intelligence with a focus on natural language processing, which is the technology we use to teach computers how to read. And so I came and I sat on this panel and I took questions from the audience. And um, after I get off stage, about five minutes after I get off stage, an email comes in to our central inbox from the contact form on our website. And it says, hey, I know this is an app for students, but I think insurance can really benefit from this technology. Do you have five minutes to chat? And at the time, you know, we weren't doing insurance. It was purely an app for students. And I took a quick look at the sender and it said at Aon.com. And at the time, I'd never heard of Aon, but I'm sure everybody listening here has. And they're one of the two biggest brokers in the world. And so I quickly followed up with this VP and I said, yes, would love to, to meet and chat. I met with her uh, over the coming weeks, uh, six meetings in the next eight weeks. And we ended up closing a pilot where they paid me to date, you know, at that point, the largest sum of money I'd ever seen in my life and uh, said, Ron, I want you to take this technology that reads textbooks and teach it how to read insurance contracts, specifically binders and policies, because we want to help. Uh, we want you to help us solve the problem of policy check, which is the errors and omissions problem I was talking about earlier, where right, sometimes yeah. through the underwriting process, things fall off. Right. And so ended up doing some work with Aon 
ended up, you know, doing some work with some of the other big brokerages. And then most recently, we won the Zurich Innovation World Championship, where Zurich put out a call to action uh, for any type of business that can have an impact on insurance. And so they got applicants ranging from things like DNA testing, healthy living, fitness, smart driving uh, self-driving cars all the way to what we do, which is more of a back office process. And after receiving 459 applications from 49 countries and three rounds of national, international, and a global competition, we took home the gold medal for what Zurich considers the most innovative solution in the world. Congratulations. Uh, that thank you. Thank you. Uh, that has anything related to do with insurance. And so uh, they're a big partner of ours. We're working with them in two geographic regions on multiple projects. And so that has been an amazing partnership. And so that's a hopefully short summary of what we do and happy to go into more details on how we well, got to be here. So it's been a, it, so it's been a pretty crazy ride. You thought it was a, a homework hack and, yeah. um, and, and here you are in the insurance industry. For sure. And, and I, I didn't know much about insurance beforehand and I'm still learning. And I think one question that I often get from people when they see me, I am, I am quite young, is like, well, what do you know about insurance? And uh -huh. my answer is nothing. Please tell me more. I uh -huh. just know a lot about AI. And, and so that's what they're looking for is they're not looking for somebody to teach them more about insurance. They're often looking for somebody who can help them with technology. And so one of the my favorite wisdoms is when you speak, you only repeat what you know. When you listen, you can learn something new. And so there that's always been my strategy with them. I there love you that. Go. You know, let's talk for a second about AI. We've had a couple AI providers on previously. But for the interest of our audience and ourselves for that matter, let's talk about AI for a minute and, and essentially what, how you define it and what it is and how uh, how Chisel uses it. Yeah, so there are traditionally seven types of branches of AI. So I'll start just by naming them and I'll dive deeper. It starts from machine learning, which is typically more of an academic pursuit, but it really houses all the other branches. And within machine learning, there's things like supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and reinforcement learning. On the flip side, you have robotics systems. And that's where everybody starts to get a little scared because they think of the Terminator. Um, <laughs> and I would just, to give you peace of mind, I think we're very, 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 very far away from that reality. So it's, it's nothing to worry about, at least today. Good. Um, <laughs> good. Yeah, we have enough to worry about today. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Um, then there's things like uh, machine vision. Examples of machine vision include autonomous cars. They use machine vision to detect objects and then make decisions based on what they're detecting. There are uh, speech-to-text and text-to-speech systems. Those typically fall under natural language processing. So examples of that include Siri, Echo, um, any other types of voice assistants that we're used to because you're speaking to them, they're understanding, and then they're speaking back to you. And then there's also uh, systems that are considered expert systems. And expert systems are probably one of the oldest types of artificial intelligence uh, because they are systems that follow more traditional rules. Unlike some of the other branches of AI, expert systems can be considered very complex decision trees. A decision tree is typically like a binary yes or no, if this, then that. Uh, but they're an expert system because they do it to a level of proficiency that a human does, even though they do it through a more defined, rigorous method. A lot of what we talk about today, and as I talk about uh, AI, what we focus on today is more, more deep learning, which means there's less structured uh, explainability. That's what you trade off when you work with deep learning systems is the explainability factor because you end up building neural nets. Each neural net makes its own decision and they're intertwined. And so to understand why the machine made it the decision that it did becomes harder and harder as you build deeper systems. So without going into a very, very deep technical explanation, um, what we do, the type of artificial intelligence we focus on falls under natural language processing. And even more specifically, we focus on two types of natural language processing. Uh, 
ex content extraction and classification. So being able, for example, to determine that in a given document, there are three parties, let's say Apple, Aon, and Zurich, and then the relationship between them. Apple is the policyholder, Zurich is the underwriter or carrier, and Aon is the broker. And so that's, that's the type of technology we focus on. And we do that specifically for insurance. So we're able to identify over 500 entities, and you can think of an entity as a noun, it's a person, place, or thing related to insurance. That's limits, deductibles, premiums, the, how the different limits are structured. Sometimes you have you know, a policy that could be uh, reinsured, so there might be a split, there might be some type of calculation that happens in there. And so that's what we focus on. There's many technologies out there that do natural language processing. I think the difference is that they are typically more horizontal. So you can get this technology from Google and Amazon and Microsoft today, but they typically are only able to extract between 10 to 20 entities, and they're more generic. So they'll be able to tell you there are three organizations in this document. So they will tell you that Apple and Aon and Zurich are in this document, but what they can't tell you is what is the relationship between them. Uh -huh. And that is where we come in, is we're building technology specific to insurance that can really read and understand these documents. And based off that, we can help people either underwrite that business or make sure that they don't have errors in that document. So you take these tremendously voluminous, difficult, hard-to-read documents and extract information from them so, you, so that, the, the, that the parties know that the information is in there right? That they're, that they're complete. Is that That's correct? Right. I mean, at the end of the day, you're kind of verifying. Is it, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I, I think verification is part of it. I think, you know, when we look at insurance and there's, there's many ways to slice and dice this, especially if you want to get like really nitty gritty. But when we look at it, even at the super highest level, there are roughly 14 points of contact between uh, the day that somebody like decides I need insurance to the day that they get the policy in hand, at least on the commercial business side. And okay. so, um, verification is sort of one of the processes and we are trying to build solutions that will help solve all 14 of those different pain points and today we're starting uh, with policy check which to to your point is a verification and on the flip side with underwriters we're actually helping them populate their quoting engines so today one of the big problems that they come to us expressing is that you know my one of my favorite facts, uh, fun facts, is that the insurance industry is the largest spender in the world on advertisements. It's more primarily on the personal line side and, and less on the commercial side. They spend a lot on auto ads. We see them right. all the time, Geico. But yeah. their problem is that they spend so much on ads that everybody wants a quote. And the problem is that to request a quote as a consumer is free. But for them to underwrite the risk is not typically so not so free. Exactly. It's typically in the hundred plus dollar range. And so their biggest problem is how do we become smarter about filtering the business to be the type of business we want to write? And so what we're helping them do is as applications are coming in, we are first reading them to extract the two to 500 data points that are in there. Applying business rules, for example, some companies don't want to underwrite uh, firearms manufacturers. They don't want to underwrite nuclear waste facilities. So anytime a property comes in with that type of classification, we can help them automatically decline it. And then the type of business that they do want to write, we actually pull the data and put it right into their underwriting engine, which today takes them roughly a week to do from start to finish because there's so many people that need to touch the document. And so we're helping them actually get their quoting times down significantly uh, while also helping them be smarter about the business that they're writing. So it is a type of verification um, and it's also a type of triage, I would say. Wow. Wow. Just really amazing. Um, I do have a non-technical question. Is everything you work with, you know, a lot of these companies have older uh, policies, probably on paper, PDFs. Is that something you can, you can digest? 
uh, you know, scan in just PDF or, or paper and then do all this work? A hundred percent. The one thing that we're, and it's not an impossible thing, but it's something that we caution against is handwriting. So no problem. You're welcome to do OCR. We support scanned documents. They don't have to be digital native. Uh, the one thing that we caution is documents that are filled in by hand is still is still a research topic. It's still a topic that even the biggest companies in the world are still trying to crack. And yeah. thankfully, at least for most of the business we deal with, I would say more than 90% of, of what they're looking to do is not handwritten. So yes, there are um, unique cases. I would say there are about 10% of the time, in which case they just do it you know, the old-fashioned way, have a human read it. So how does it work? And maybe maybe you can't tell me, I don't know, but let's say, let's go back to the olden days, what, I don't know, seven years ago for you maybe, uh, whenever you wanted to do this with a textbook, you had a thousand pages and now you, now you want this machine to summarize it. How mm -hmm. do you start teaching in any computer what words and sentences in a certain order mean? How does that Love even it. start? So... There's, there's many ways to crack, you know, this egg, and there's no one right way to do it. The approach that I took, and I think there are innovations since then, if I were to go back, you know, I was doing this in 2013, 2014. So there have definitely been leaps and bounds of innovation since then. But here's how I did it in those initial days. So the first thing you do is just called uh, removing stop words. Stop words are words such as the... Uh, very, very common words that are, don't really add any, any value. The okay. next thing you do is called lemonization and tokenization and stemming. So it's taking all words and conjugating them to one base. So for example, running, ran, uh, run, all of that should be conjugated to its root. That way you don't have any mix-up. And then you start to do some more statistical methods. And this is where I think there have been um, technological advancements, but this is what we did back then. It was called TFIDF, which stands for Term Frequency Inverse Document Frequency. And here's what that means. Given a corpus, and a corpus is just a fancy word for a large collection of like documents. So in this case, I would, for example, take business textbooks and other textbooks that were on the same topic of what I was trying to do. And you, you count how many times, and not you, but, you know, with a machine that can do millions of words a second, you count how many times each word appears. And the interesting thing about the English language, and I think it holds true for other languages as well, is that the, the, the distribution is actually one over N. So each word... Uh, becomes one over n. So the second most common word is half as frequent as the first most common word. But that, that just depends on the corpus. And so that's why you need the corpus. So what you do is given a new document on the same topic, you run that distribution. And what you're looking for is any differences. So for example, if you expect the word economics to appear one in 10 times in a business textbook, but here it appeared... Uh, one in five times, that means that this word is more important in this context for whatever reason. Or the inverse, if you expected it to appear one in 10 words and it only appeared one in 100 words, that meant that the one time that it did appear was probably a very specific, they used that word for a reason. And so that's just one example of a statistical distribution, TFIDF, that you can do to start assigning scores to words. And then what you do is you can sum up the score of a sentence. Now remember, the length of a sentence, uh, the more words that there are in a sentence, the more likely it is to have a higher score. So you would average it out. If the sentence had 11 words, you would sum, it, sum up the score of each word and divide by 11. And that was basically the... Uh, the standard unit of what that score was for a sentence. You could do the same thing for a paragraph and a page. And then all I did was a sorting algorithm. Show me the most important pages, then the most important paragraphs, then the most important sentences, then the most important words. And I could actually, you know, set a threshold. Anything less important than this, don't show me. And then it's just a fine-tuning exercise uh, based on the corpuses that you have and, and the statistics that you run, you can do some fine-tuning and actions of being very, very accurate. 
you know, that I is a, amazing. I, I had a friend in in graduate school. <laughs> oh, I'll I'll shout him out, Jeff Holmes, who I haven't spoken to in a long time. But Jeff was a great guy. He was an electrical engineer, and he told me um, the stories about when he was going through getting his bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, which is a tough degree to get and um, requires a tremendous amount of diligence and study. And, um, but the way that he got through it was basically by organizing a whole group of people into, uh, and I'm going to use this word liberally, into, big, uh, into a big um, group that kind of uh, cheated their way through <laughs> <laughs> their their degree but in the process of doing that right they they had to work on it so hard and so diligently he ended up learning and becoming a a very successful and very prominent electrical engineer because he learned all about electrical engineering he just didn't want to do it in a classroom and it sounds to me like you kind of learned all about everything that you're talking about or certainly the introduction to it all by trying to find a shortcut of having to go to class is that is that fair to say? For sure. And I've been quoted saying this before, and I'm happy to be quote saying it again. One of my favorite quotes comes from somebody named Bill Gates that I'm sure most people have heard of. And he said, and I love this, he says, I always pick the laziest engineer to solve the hardest problem because they'll find the easiest way to get it done. And I would say that has very much been reflective of my journey to date. Wow. Wow. So you consider yourself lazy. You don't sound like it at all. No. And, yeah. and a lot of times I get to interview people and, and people have obviously interviewed me. And, and when they ask, like, what is a weakness or what is one of your like weaknesses? And, you know, people always try to come up with these answers that are a weakness, but really it's a strength. And my answer uh -huh. is like, I, I'm, I'm lazy. Like I will do I will build a system as simple as possible, but not simpler. And that is, I think, what every engineer should strive to do. And so I work my butt off, don't get me wrong, but Obviously. if I can like build a dolly to roll a rock up the hill, I will do that rather than manually lifting the rock all the way up the hill. Right. And I think that, you know, Lee and I are, are part of the team that, that run our company and that's constantly a struggle is are we making this more difficult whatever it right. is whatever the topic is rightly are we making this more are, are we making this more difficult than what it needs to be yeah i really like that whole philosophy on make it as simple as possible but not but what is that but not too simple or yeah simple make it enough? as simpler as possible but not simpler yeah i mean uh, that's really really you know, something you got to think about whenever you're building processes and technologies and all that. I mean, I can easily overcomplicate something uh, because I get one person extra effect, but maybe all I need is that base. Yeah. Something to uh, remember. Uh -huh. Yeah. My, my son, uh, who's in the tech world too, talks about the 80-20 rule. They, they want to put out, instead of looking for 100% uh, effectiveness, they want to put out 20% of the effort and get 80% of the effectiveness um, and not worry about getting 100% of the effectiveness because uh, the additional effort that it takes over that 20% to get to 100 might be substantial. And 80% might get you there, whatever the case may be. And uh, it, there's uh, these are interesting uh, managerial <laughs> and philosophic questions. But uh, I wanted to t turn the corner here a little bit and talk about marketing. Um, you went from being, uh, originally from being, I guess, in the student education space into the insurance space that you were really didn't know much about. Did Aon kind of take you by the hand and help you learn the industry so that you knew how to sell your product? How did that go? I'm interested in the marketing side of Chisel AI. Yeah, so I think a lot of it was definitely... So learning for sure from them, but I think it's sort of similar to like the classroom where most of the class, most of the learning happens outside the classroom in, in your own time. So when, when Aon approached me, you know, 
one of the things that I did was I wanted to make sure that we weren't building a one-off product, that this wasn't just a problem for them. And so I did some research and what I found was stunning, which was the industry loses north of a billion, $2 billion a year uh, due to lawsuits stemming from errors and omissions. And so what I did was I looked at the public quarterly or an, an annual statements for both Aon and Marsh. So everything I'm going to say is public information. And so if you look at their, at their statements in any given year, they both lose more than 100 million British pounds in lawsuits stemming from the errors and omissions in policies that they issue. Um, and that's on top of an undisclosed amount of money that they're spending to prevent those. And, uh, and I, if I had to estimate, like that's probably tens of millions of dollars a year on both sides. So it's a huge problem. And, and so that was the first thing I did was market research, that it wasn't just Aon that had this problem. And it turns out it's not. Every single brokerage has this problem. In fact, they buy errors and omissions insurance to protect themselves against it, which is ironic. It's an insurance company insuring itself against its own mistakes. Um, <laughs> Um, and so a lot of that, I think the, what we have now is, you know, a team of subject matter experts in house. So one of the focuses over the past year for us has been actually hiring, uh, smart individuals from the industry. And so right now I think we have four or five in house. These are people who have worked at Zurich, Travelers, Marsh, Aon, all of these big customers that we either have or we're trying to get to. And they have firsthand experience with these problems on the other on the other side. And so um, they are our sort of seeker weapon because I'm I'm by no means an expert on insurance. What I am good at is solving problems in an easy way. And so um, we look to them to guide us. And so one other thing that we do, and this is less maybe on the marketing side, and I'm happy to revisit marketing, um, but on the product development side, we already have a list of the next seven products we want to build. And the way we gather this list is from client feedback. So I go out there, I meet with the CEOs and the VPs of the biggest companies in the world. And I ask them, you know, what problems do you, what problems are you trying to solve in the next three years? And when I hear something once, I add it to our spreadsheet. And then every time it gets mentioned again, we take a note. And really the way it works is if I hear something once, you know, it's just whatever. If I hear it twice, it's a coincidence. If I hear it three times, then I say, okay, let's let's start thinking a little deeper on this. And we need to get to about seven. If we have at least seven people tell us that, like, this is a problem and this is what I would be willing to pay, then we can build a business case and I can take that to the board and get the funding to develop that product. And so, you know, I think that's maybe touching on the marketing side, but that is how we we gather a lot of our intel is through our customers. We're on the topic. Uh, we're all living within the topic of coronavirus this these days. Is that an E&O issue? So it's interesting. I, I don't think it's an E&O issue. I actually believe what we're going to see is a huge amount of business interruption claims. Business right. interruption is a type of insurance you can get. Uh, just for those who don't know, that basically insures your receivables as well as your payables. So it will cover any income that you were expecting and also any expenses such as fixed costs, including rent and machinery if you're a factory, uh, plus variable costs that you can put. And so I'm very curious to see because one thing that you will see is many insurance policies have exclusions, which is no problem. But one of my favorite exclusions is an act of God. Mm -hmm. And... To define an act of God, you know, I know that there is a legal definition and the court of law has some precedent and I'm not a lawyer, so I won't speak to it. But I think that that precedent may be challenged. And I also know that pandemics are sometimes exclusions. And so I am very curious to see over the next three to six months as claims start to get filed, where the court systems take this and if this gets challenged. Yeah, I saw I saw where New Jersey already had uh, something filed by restaurant owners saying that they were being forced to close down. I didn't read the entire article, but I just thought it was interesting that lawsuits and and uh, legality is already coming into this because they're out of money, right? They need 
They need somebody to say, yeah, we force you to do that. And I think we're going to see that a whole lot uh, in, in, in the coming weeks. Well, my son-in-law runs a very successful um, theme bar in Sacramento where I live. And the, the, the state just basically said, as well as the county, many uh, government organizations said, please close now. Right. Unless you like, like we were speaking before the the podcast, except for delivery, uh, food delivery. Well, they don't do food; they're they're a bar, and so they're closed. And uh, so, I, I mean, this is obviously a a business interruption catastrophe, right. certainly for the insurance industry. Um, and I ju- I just figured because of that, w- that those would be commercial policies um, exclusively. I'm sure it'll it, it touches your work or, or would touch your work. For sure, for sure. And so I I actually don't know how this is gonna play out. As I said, like I think the exclusion section is gonna be the most interesting part of this debate. Acts of God and pandemics are are gonna be challenged, I think, at a court level. And I, I don't know which way it's going to go, and I'm not rooting one way or the other. I'm just curious as, as somebody who's going to get impacted by this. Right. I, I want to ask you uh, just one last question, and that's about Google. You worked at Google for a while. Tell us about that experience. We're all, everybody's kind of a little, I think, in our industry, a little bit starstruck by Google and what they do and how they do it and their unique culture. I'm sure you learned some things there about running your own company. Can, can you share a little bit of your experience there? Yeah, so I, I had sort of two interactions with Google that I can talk about on, on some. One of them is, and I think this is probably the one that you're referencing, is I used to sit the University of Waterloo, uh, Google. I was the internal VP there. Um, and it was it was their student club where which interfaced with Google. And then the other one is I, I did a small internship uh, in 2014, during the summer, and I, I got to see a little bit of things there um, for a short period. And I mean, for, for and I, I would say, so I'll, I can speak to that, and I'll add another sort of company that I can speak to with a lot more clarity, which I think is more relevant, is John Hancock Manulife. So I okay, used to work great. for John Hancock Manulife for uh, a whole internship uh, at their research lab. And these companies... Like I'm starstruck by them too, but I I just don't think that they're at least not for, so I'll start with Google. I don't think there's much that Google personally is going to do in the insurance space. What what we have seen happen is Google making investments in insure tech startups and even well-known players like they they invested in Applied um, earlier uh, last year. And so I don't think Google by itself will in any way enter the space. And if it does, I think it's more on the personal line side because they have a lot of personal data. On the commercial line side, one of the comments that I've heard, um, and I won't attribute this to any one company, is just they don't want Google to have their data. It's, it's, they actually told me, like when I came in, um, they said, Ron, the reason we chose you is because you're nobody. As ironic as that might sound, they go, that gives me peace of mind because like, you're going to build your whole business on insurance. And if you ever do wrong by us, then the whole industry is going to know. And it's very tight-knit. Whereas Google, you know, they used to have the first sentence in their corporate policy, and, and do some research into this because there's a lot of conspiracy, used to be do no evil. Right. And they removed that in 2018 or 2019. It no longer appears anywhere in their company policy. And so, you know, so there's a whole conspiracy around that. Think of that what you may. But I was told to my face that one of the reasons people want to work with me is because we are nobody. And, like, if we don't do right by the big guys, we just won't make it. Whereas for Google, it's not the same. Wow. Well, tell us, tell us one more thing. I have a question for you. So being a insured tech, uh, you're in a very unique place. You're a fast-moving, nimble company uh, that is able to, to change on a dime, yet sometimes you're working with uh, companies that are more methodical and slower to change. Uh, how is that for you, and, and what do, do you 
do to adapt to that? Yeah, it's tough. And, and I've, I've given a couple different talks on, on this topic. And it's like when I get invited sometimes to be a keynote speaker, um, I, I love to talk about this because insurance companies live in a different timeline than startups. The typical life for a startup is 18 to 24 months. When a startup goes out to fundraise, they are making promises to investors and investors are risk averse and making a, a VC bet is especially a risky bet. And so they typically only give you money that will go for 18 to 24 months. And if you don't deliver on the milestones for the next fundraise, you either experience a downride or, or most times you just die. And so when you get into a, into a procurement cycle that takes 18 to 24 months, that's a death that's basically a guaranteed death for a startup. And so I, I talk a lot about making a procurement light process or some type of process that recognizes that, especially for a proof of concept or a, a pilot, whatever you want to call it, a small defined piece of work and scope, please try to have a more efficient procurement cycle because a startup cannot invest six months negotiating with legals, another two months negotiating with procurement, Correct. another month doing like all that. It just doesn't work. And uh -huh. so uh, a lot of the companies that we work with, you know, I'll give a big shout out to Zurich. Zurich is amazing at this, um, especially with their Innovation World Championship. They have figured out a way how to do a procurement light. And so I am happy if anybody wants to reach out to me, I, I'll, I'll get on a 30 minute call with you and I'll walk you through and I'm happy to share templates of like what an MSA should look like because we spent the first four months of our, like of our biggest contracts, which I can't name, negotiating the MSA. And I think now we have a template that has been vetted by four of the biggest insurance companies in the world. I'm happy to share it, you know, not in a public fashion, but if you want it in a one-on-one -on -one fashion, because I think it's the right level of protection for the big guys and the right level of speed and efficiency for the little guys. Um, so you can reach out to me glossman at chisel.ai or through our website or on twitter happy to share that wonderful that's great that that that's kind of you i, I know we have m many insure techs that listen to us who are always looking for uh help or ideas and you guys are like you said you're five and a half or approaching six years old so you're you're an old timer in in the insure tech world yeah and and you know ironically I wish so of that sort of almost six year sort of journey I've been on only three and a half, four years has been focused on insurance. I wish the first two and not I wish because, you know, looking back, I think every step in the journey was important. But the first two years were, were spent on that app for students. And so um, it's been about four years really focused in the insure tech space. Well, listen, we're really glad to have you today thank you uh for uh joining us and popping your head up out of your um coronavirus compound wherever that may be we're all in, <laughs> we're all in our own personal coronavirus compounds today and um uh we look forward to meeting you i hope our, i hope our paths cross maybe at a Me conference too. when they when they have conferences again someday do you i'm sure you go to insure tech connect right Yes, we do. And uh, we this year, if it does happen, we'll, we have a large, nice booth. Please come check us out. And I should be speaking on stage if that is happening. So. I will be there for sure to see you. Yeah, that'd be great. Let's, let's all hope for the world that uh, not only for our selfish reasons, but for the world that InsureTech Connect happens. Because if it does, that means good things are happening, right? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So thanks, Ron. We will uh, we'll talk to you in the future. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, guys. I have one word for that interview. What is that, Rob? Mr. Boyd. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, just whenever you think uh, you have a level of, of intelligence about anything, <laughs> you talk to a person like that and think, wow, I have a lot to learn. Uh -huh. that, that guy's uh -huh. smart. But He's you know smart. What? Yeah. How old is he, Rob? He's 25 years old. 25 years old. Mm -hmm. I keep thinking about 
you know, movies where these geniuses are young and they come out and they invent, you know, these, you know, these things. And it sounds like that's where, where he's going. That was it. I love that. I love that uh, discussion with him. It was, it was remarkable. It was deep. It was broad. And, um, I mean, obviously a brilliant young man, but smart enough also to know, like, like he was saying with that, that quote from Bill Gates Mm -hmm. about don't make it complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's something we all have to think about. I, uh, I liked how he broke down the, the seven areas of AI. I, Mm -hmm. I not really learned that, you know, Mm -hmm. now that I, now that I can envision it, it's more like a tree where each layer comes down. There's seven. Then underneath them, you have uh, things like content, you know, content and classification underneath natural language process. Uh, it makes more sense to me. I mean, we've had a lot of AI people on. I work with AI all the time, but now I really get it. I, I'm, I'm starting to understand it more. Yeah. Uh, a, a, a remarkable tool mm-hmm. for our industry. Right. Which, which deals with such complexity. Yeah, I'm always thinking about what else we can use AI for and how can we take it to the next level. And mm-hmm. there's just a, a ton of ways that, that we can streamline our processes in the claims world and in the insurance world using this. Uh, we just need more people like Ron who can come along and, and create it correctly. Well, maybe we need to take a ride to Toronto. I, I would love to do that. Uh, when maybe in like July, maybe he told us that they have a lot of toilet paper up there. So yeah, in these, hey, Rob, in, in these times of scarce toilet paper, we might yeah. we might want to head up to Canada. We'll be knocking on the door soon, Ron. Looking there forward to it. We want to thank Ron for being with us today, and uh, for all you for being with us. And uh, we assume that if you're listening to this uh, anywhere near when we recorded it, you're hunkered down in your um, social distanced location in your home i hope and uh we all hope that you're safe and healthy and that you stay that way and uh for all of us at at fno and true tech uh stay healthy and we'll say like we always do goodbye everybody